0: Let's hear God's word from Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then, shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, and the end, everlasting life, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies... She is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law We're at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 6 of Romans chapter 7. Let's ask for God's help in prayer once again. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, help us not only to understand what it is that the apostle conveys in these verses, But help us to really experience it, to take it in by faith, to be able to see how it matches with what we go through. And by this, Lord, to be encouraged, to be encouraged by what Christ has done for us, to be encouraged by the opportunity that we have to do something for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. What Paul is doing in Romans chapter 6 and in the beginning of Romans chapter 7 is he's answering objections that might be brought against his doctrine. You maybe remember that chapter 5 verse 21 ends with a thought that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace reigns through righteousness That's the beginning of the answer to the idea that we should continue in sin, that grace would abound. You see, Paul says, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now, there's three possible reactions to that. On the one hand, you could say, that's great news. I am an abundant sinner, and I need abundant grace. And that's the right reaction. On the other hand, you could say, All right, that's really cool. That means the more I sin, the more grace there is. So I better buckle down and get to it. That's the wrong reaction. Or then there's also the reaction that says, hold on, Paul, don't say that. Because if you say that, people are going to feel emboldened to sin. So the one, the first reaction, the right reaction, that's great news because I'm an abundant sinner and I need abundant grace. That's the reaction of the believing heart. That's the reaction of somebody who knows and truly understands the gospel. The second reaction is from somebody who thinks they understand the gospel, but who really don't because they find their joy and their freedom and their comfort in being the slaves of sin, which is ridiculous. And then the third category is people who in some ways they're better off. They know that sin is bad. They know that you want to stay away from it but they don't actually believe that grace reigns through righteousness. They think unless you keep people on a very short leash, they're going to go nuts. They're going to go crazy with sin. That's what you could call the legalists' reaction. So you have the gracious reaction, the antinomian reaction, and the legalists' reaction. Well, Paul understands that this can be complicated. He understands that people can be confused. So he deals with those objections, and he deals with them through a series of questions. In chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And he explains why. And then in verse 15, he returns to the subject, Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. And again, he explains why. And then again, in Romans chapter 7, he asks the question, Do you not know brethren. But then in verse 7, he asks again, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And again, he answers it with certainly not. So what Paul is doing in this whole section is he's clarifying, and he's clarifying by means of raising a question and putting together a contrast so that we can see what is the truth more clearly because it's held up against the ways that you could misunderstand or twist the truth. Now, in all of that, we're not going to look at all of that today, but what we want to focus on in verses 22 and 23, and part of the reason for that is that here Paul is summarizing. Probably everybody here and most people who grow up with a church background are aware of Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Many of us have memorized that, and it's very familiar. We're not likely ever to forget it. But have you ever noticed that that verse is an explanation? It starts with the word for. It's giving you the reason for something that Paul had just said. And that's the much less familiar verse 22. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. And I want you to notice how that one begins as well. It begins but now. There's a contrast there. Here's something, here's one way for things to be, but on the other hand, here's a different way for things to be. And part of the contrast is between then and now. What used to be the case? Well, it used to be the case that you were the slaves of sin. And when you were the slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness now, that could mean that you had zero righteousness, and that's certainly a true thought. It could also mean that you didn't worry about righteousness, and that's true at least for a lot of people. And when you lived that way, what was your life like? Well, he says, what fruit did you then have in the things of which you are now ashamed? There was activity, there were things happening, there was stuff being produced. But was it anything that deserved the name of fruit? Was it a profitable Was it a fruitful? Was it a blessed life? Well, what were the results of that life? Shame and death. And so he's going to set up a contrast to all of that. Slave of sin, bringing about shame, ultimately leading to death. That's one side of the equation. But now, the other side of the equation is slaves to God or to righteousness. He says both, because being a slave to God means being a slave to righteousness. The fruit of holiness or unto holiness, in the end, everlasting life. So that's a pretty sharp contrast between these two ways. It's been summarized as a change of masters, a change of practice, a change of destiny, and that's good as far as it goes, but I think With practice, you could even drill down a little bit more, and you could say there's a change in the quality of life. So let's explore these things a little bit. Verse 22 says, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. The main thought in verse 22 is you have your fruit. That's the central core. But what's preparatory to that? What needs to happen in order for you to have a fruitful life, a life that has the quality of holiness as well as the quality of fruitfulness to it? And you can't separate those things. They go together. What has to happen first? Well, you have to be set free from sin and you have to become a slave of God. So the slaves are set free. Now, the slaves are not set free to just live without reference to anyone. Paul is very clear about this, and Paul does not pull any punches here. You are either the servant of sin or you are the servant, the slave of righteousness. The idea, I'm not going to be anyone's slave, in one sense, that's an absolute myth. You are going to serve somebody. You're not big enough. You're not important enough. To stand on your own two feet and say, I serve myself. Everybody who thinks that way, who are they actually serving? They're serving sin. It's a lie. It's a ruse. It's a deceit. So we need to just get over that hump. We need to realize we are going to be serving someone. And there are basically two choices. Of course, the Bible does this a lot. Jesus puts it in somewhat different terms, but he sets it out there. You are the, in John chapter eight, you're the children of God or you're the children of the devil. Those are your choices. Well, here Paul puts it a little bit differently. You're the slave of righteousness, the slave of God, or you're the slave of sin. Those are your two choices. That's it. That categorizes everybody. There's no in between and there's no escaping from it. So we need to come to grips with that because that's not necessarily something we like to hear. There's a resolution to this. But part of the resolution has to be that we stop thinking I'm going to be my own person and I'm going to live for myself because that's a cheat. That's just a way for sin to cut your face off and put it on. That's all that's happening when you say I'm serving myself. I'm living for myself. You're really living for sin. It's just that sin is wearing your face. So that's really not a great choice. That's not what you want to be, where you want to be. You are either going to serve sin or you're going to serve God. Those are the choices. Now, serving sin is a bondage. What results from that? Well, shame and then ultimately death. That's the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. What does sin deserve? What does every sin deserve? Well, you could say the wrath and curse of God. You can say death. You notice how he highlights that in verse 23. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God. There's a contrast there between wages and gift. What do you acquire? What does sin pay? If you serve sin faithfully your whole life long, what does sin give you in the end? Sin gives you death. In the short term, sin gives you shame. In the long term, sin gives you death. What a deal. It's not worth it to serve sin. The service of sin is a heavy, is an unendurable bondage. Then you're thinking, yeah, but if my other choice is to serve God, is that any better? Yes, it is better. And it's better for three reasons. Your immediate fruit is holiness. Your long-term prospects are eternal life. So there's two reasons. But what's the third reason? The third reason is that service to God is true, is perfect freedom. Paul does not hesitate to say, you've been made free and you're slaves of God. How can a human being be truly free? How can they be truly free to be what they are only in serving God? God. Because who made you? Who designed you? Who created an end of blessedness and glory and fruition, fulfillment for you? Well, it was God. You're not going to get to that apart from God. In fact, your ultimate end is God himself. So what is bondage? What is slavery? Well, it's being forced to do what you don't want to do. And in the short term, of course, sometimes in order to serve God, we have to do what we don't want to do in our flesh. But our new nature, our renewed nature, the true us that God is rebuilding because we're such a disaster, we're rubble. The true us that God is rebuilding, that is our goal. That is our joy. That is our freedom. Freedom is being able to do what you want, but true freedom is is being able to do what you want that is good, that is in keeping with who you are supposed to be. So in one sense, you're the slave of God. You owe him all obedience. But in another sense, that is the greatest freedom that could ever be given. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, says the Lord Jesus. Paul puts both concepts together, and it doesn't bother him because he realizes that there's an element of complexity here, but also because he realizes that until you see the service of God as true freedom, you're going to be looking for cheap substitutes that are unfruitful and unsatisfying. However, we need to move on. There's also a strong contrast right now in the quality of life. There's A contrast in the practice of life, of course, we used to yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness, but now we're supposed to take all that we have and all that we are and yield that to God to serve righteousness. So there's a big change in practice, but there's also a change in the quality of life. We've already mentioned this, but just to make sure it's very, very clear, verse 21, what fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? Well, on the one hand, you could say, there was no fruit. There was no fulfillment. There was nothing profitable. There was nothing worthwhile. Or if you wanted to change the analogy a little bit, you could say, well, the fruit was all bitter. It was rotten. It was like biting into an apple or a pear or whatever it is that you like and finding that inside it's wormy and disgusting. And Paul kind of does that in chapter 7, verse 5, when he says, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So on the one hand, you could say, well, the life of sin is unfruitful. It yields nothing worthwhile. On the other hand, you could say, well, everything that looks like fruit, everything that seems to be fruit is actually horrifying, disgusting, and leading to death. So Paul describes that as shame those things of which you are now ashamed. It's barren, it's unprofitable, and it's shameful. Serving sin is not a happy condition. And it's not just an unhappy condition because down the road you're going to get punished. It's an unhappy condition because right now you are living a squalid and disgusting life that is of no use to anybody. That's what sin is. Sin is is inextricably linked to shame. But what's the opposite of that? Well, it's a fruitful life. You bear fruit to holiness. Now, here's something of which you do not need to be ashamed. Here's something that has value. Here's something that even has eternal value. And you know, when we're facing temptation, this is a helpful thing to bear in mind. If you give way to temptation, what will result? Well, A... It's not going to yield anything for the long term. It's not going to yield anything that deserves the name of fruit. But it is going to have a result. It is going to work out to something. It's going to work out to shame. If you stand strong in temptation, if you resist, if you look to God for grace and flee the devil, flee youthful lusts, then what will happen? Well, that will be fruit to holiness of which you do not need to be ashamed. There already is something that ought to make the life of being a slave of God very deeply attractive. Can you imagine leaving shame behind? Leaving that bondage, leaving that vicious cycle where the only answer to your feelings of shame is more shameful behavior. It really is very much like a cycle of addiction where you have to keep going and going and do more and more. Because the rewards are less every single time. The relief you acquire is diminished over and over. But here's an alternative. Yield yourself as a slave to God and bear fruit. Fruit to holiness, to a cleanness, to a purity that in some measure reflects the very character of God. Oh, that's a vision worth pursuing. That's something worth having. And then, of course, you have the contrast in where things end up. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Well, we already have mentioned this. We've touched on it briefly. This part is the most familiar part of our passage. Hopefully, you already know it's not just talking about physical death. Because what's the contrast? What's the opposite of it? Everlasting life. Life that goes on forever. Life also that is of a completely different quality. So on the one hand, you have barrenness, shame, and then death. Everlasting death. Death that never ends. Where the experience, the sharpness of being separated from God himself where the difficulty of being under the wrath of God never ends. That's where sin leads. That's what you get. That's your wage for being sin's drudge. That's beneath you. That's beneath those who have been created in the image of God, those who have received the high calling of the gospel. But instead, God holds out not a wage, Not something you earn, but a crowning gift to come on top of all of the other gifts. Eternal life with God himself. You see, he's the one who gives the change of masters and of practice. He's the one who gives the change of the quality of life. He's the one who gives the change of destiny. God has already worked. He's crucified us with Christ, we've died with Christ, we've been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, chapter 6 verse 5. How did we become dead to the law? It was through the body of Christ. How is it that we bear fruit to holiness? It's through the work of Christ in our hearts. So how is it that we come to everlasting life? Well, it's not because we earned it. That's not a wage, that is a gift, that is a free gift. But it's a gift that comes in sequence. It's a gift that comes to crown and to finish, to bring to perfection all the other gifts that God has already given. And how do all these gifts reach us? Paul says, in or by Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, sometimes we skip over those little phrases because we think, well, this is just... Pious speak, you know, we pepper our language with references to Christ, whether we really mean them or not. That's not pious. That's getting pretty close to breaking the third commandment if it's not actually a violation of it. It's not too far from it. Paul is not just throwing Jesus's name in at random. He really means what he says. How does the gift of eternal life, how does that free gift come to anybody? It comes in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In other words, it only reaches those who are united to Christ. It only comes to those who are joined to Christ by the Spirit on his part, by faith in our part. And you see, that's been the great theme of Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We're joined to Christ. His death becomes ours. His resurrection becomes ours. As he was raised up, we're raised up to walk in newness of life. The change in the quality of our life is due to what? It's due to the resurrection of Christ. And how does the resurrection of Christ make any difference to the quality of our lives? Because we're joined to him, because we're united to him, because we are in Him, eternal life is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, this is the answer to antinomianism. Why do I not take the truth that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds, and go and pursue sin and sin to my heart's content and think, well, God's grace will be more than sufficient for this? Well, there's two reasons. One reason is that I've learned to see sin as shameful, as something to be avoided, as odious and awful. But the other reason is that I'm joined to Christ. The power of his resurrection life is working in me. It's working in us so that we do yield our members as instruments of righteousness. How is union to Christ? The answer to legalism, this fear that if you tell people too much about the grace of God, if you talk to them about how free the gift of eternal life is, then they won't behave well. If they're united to Christ, their hearts will be drawn to seek him, to serve him, to love him, to glorify him. And they will want to turn away from everything that is contrary to the Lord Jesus. This is wonderful news this morning. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you're in Christ, it's already been made over to you. If you're in Christ, you can be absolutely confident that it is coming, no matter the circumstances around your physical death in this world, whatever they may be, whether you die suddenly or slowly, whether it's painless or agonizing, whatever the details are, eternal life is already yours in Christ. But it's also true, if you're not in Christ, If you're still outside of Christ, then what's the reality? The reality is that you're the servant of sin, that you're leading a shameful life, and that the wages you will be paid is everlasting death. We cannot be indifferent to these things. We can't (laughs) act like it's no big deal. We need to be united to Christ. We need to trust him, to receive him, by faith. And for those who have done so, for those who are united to Christ, the table of the Lord speaks to us that what he did, what he is, is really and truly ours, that everything he has is ours because we are united to him. And so his flesh and blood are our true meat and drink unto everlasting life. Amen.